going to be in Philippians, the second chapter. Tonight we're going to read um, from the English Standard Version. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. And this is what the Apostle Paul records. He says to the readers in Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So in other words, by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when we read a portion of scripture like this in um, a, a Christianized society, um, Oftentimes, we can just kind of glance over some of the things that are stated here in a passage like this. But for the people in Philippi who were inundated with, uh, you know, a, a Roman kind of secular view of how the world was, uh, was going, um, the Romans had gods, the Romans had idols, but they would have never, never in a million years thought that their gods would condescend themselves by coming to earth in human form. They were just so far out there and so beyond. It's almost as if, um, you know, the Roman gods or the Roman idols, um, they were really just the same idols as the Greeks had. They were just named differently, okay? But they were basically the same thing. And for, for a God to have language that he, would, that he would lessen certain elements of himself to take on human form was just so abstract to them, so bizarre to them. And so as the church in Philippi is reading this, I'm sure it's coming as a shock for them um, about this idea that God would come in human form. Now, the word that, you know, I've been throwing around a little bit, the word kenosis is just basically a word that, that's used in this text, but all it means is this. It means that God chose to empty himself of certain things so that he could take on human form. That's what kenosis means. Um, there is, um, tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you several pictures or images of, um, you know, just some ideas to kind of wrestle with when we talk about this idea that God emptied, you know, certain elements of himself. And um, as we do that, um, one of the primary images I want you to, to think on, um, I read from, I, I think it was John MacArthur had basically uh, used this idea of eight different steps. And basically what he said, he said, uh, if, if God were on the stage, if this stage were the heavens, that little by little, Jesus chose to take a step down by doing this. And then he chose to come even further by doing that. And then he would choose and, and just step by step, he would come down until he was on the level of a human being. And so there are these images, these ideas that we need to kind of keep in mind. But as we do that, and as I say certain things tonight, I know that, you know, for, for many of us, including myself, they're going to be kind of shocking a little bit, or what does that really mean, or trying to figure all these things out. 
But I want to say this at the very outset before we even get going tonight, that it's so vitally important that we remember that Jesus is in every way equal to God the Father. Jesus is not God 2.0. He is the Son of God, but he's not junior God. He is God. It's a complex, very difficult thing to understand as we talk about the triune God, but it's a scriptural reality. Paul would write this to the church in Colossae. He said, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, when you see the Son, you see the Father. Anything that the Son would do, the Father would do. And so it's important for us to understand that although Jesus took on humanity and he laid certain deistic type things aside, Jesus never laid down his deity. He never became not God. He, he remained God. He simply laid certain things down and he took on humanity. The language that Paul uses is this. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, and what he's saying is this. He's saying Jesus was God, okay? Though Jesus was God, he took on the form of a servant, meaning he was God, but he also became a servant without laying down his God-likeness. So this is how C.S. Lewis describes it in his book called Miracles, Okay. I'm hoping this will kind of, um, kind of bring things home. This is what Lewis writes. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to then reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being, down into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again, and to bring the whole ruined world up with him, and we say amen. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower in order to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly strengthens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. That is such a beautiful image of the dissension of God coming to lift that which is broken up out of the miry clay. He had to come so low in order to grab us from the depths of our depravity. This is the kenosis. Um, it's that God emptied himself of glory as much as anything as Jesus emptied himself of Glory was probably the most that he emptied himself of for this reason. Because if Christ would have come in the fullness of his glory, the natural world could not have sustained. It would have been burnt up or destroyed, much less a human body. And so Jesus had to empty himself, not of deity, but of glory, so that a human body and the earth itself could contain him. This is what we mean when we say the kenosis, the self-emptying of God. So tonight what I want to do is I want to go through um, just several different kind of micro layers of things that, that Jesus gave up as God in order to take on humanity, okay? So number one in your notes, it says that Jesus stepped down 
from certain divine rights and certain divine privileges, okay? Now, again, he didn't empty himself of his deity. He did not, not become God, okay? But he did lay down certain, maybe even attributes, maybe a word that we could use there, but there are certain rights and certain privileges that he chose not to engage with so that he could identify with humanity. Now, we do see at certain times where Jesus engages with those certain things. We'll get into those in, in a couple of minutes. We see God execute things that only God could do in certain moments. We see that. But this is what's important to remember. In every single moment where Jesus executed God events or activities, every single time, it was never for his own benefit. It was always for the benefit of others. And that is in and of itself a divine privilege and a divine right that he would not serve himself, but he would serve other people. He laid those things aside and only used those godlike characteristics for the betterment of other people. And so Jesus stepped down from certain divine rights and, and privileges. Now, some of those divine rights and privileges are also in your notes. For instance, Jesus gave up the right to call on heavenly assistance. So you remember Jesus is in the garden, um, the, the mob comes up, Peter draws out his sword, right? And he goes to work on Malchus, chops off his ear. This is what Jesus' response was to Peter. It wasn't even necessary to all of these people that were coming after him. This is what Jesus says to his disciple that's trying to defend him. He says, Peter, do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So in other words, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, Peter, I appreciate the heart. You know what I'm saying? That was a good swing there, buddy. Okay, I appreciate it. But don't you realize this is so far beyond weapons of human warfare? I could call on my father and dispatch 12 legions of angels to come to me, but this is what he says. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? that say it must happen in this way. So Jesus, in this moment, he lays down the right to call upon the angelic host to come and rescue him, to assist him for this reason. He says, if I do that, what scripture says would not be fulfilled. And so he laid that aside so that scripture could be fulfilled. So he gives up the right to call on heavenly assistance. He also gives up the right to be worshiped and to be honored. Um, now, there's a whole thing we'll get into in, in our next session, but it's important to understand that, that there is a difference. Jesus could have come and required people to worship him, right? But that's really not what is in the heart of the Father. The Father wants people to worship him out of response to him, not because it's required of them. And Jesus being God could have just demanded. He could have called knees to buckle and he could have called vocal cords just to sing out his praises. But he laid that aside so that people would do it out of a voluntary response. Okay, so he, he gave up the right to be worshiped and to be honored. He also gave up the right of being glorified. Okay, uh, this is what I mean by that. Um, the glory of God 
was in him to some degree. Remember we said earlier that he laid aside a lot of glory so that the human nature could contain God in a body. So there was still glory within Jesus, but even the glory that existed in Jesus was somewhat veiled to other people. It was kind of hidden away from, from other people. And so when people saw Jesus, they, they may not have recognized that they were seeing God. They didn't recognize the glory because Jesus had set aside some of the glory. It reminded me of a uh, really poor analogy here, but um, if you've ever seen the movie Aladdin, you remember Aladdin? And in one of the, uh, the opening part of the movie, Princess Jasmine comes into the picture and she's dressed like a peasant. She has, you know, the, the hood on and she's just this average girl. She has no clue what she's doing in society. All of a sudden, Aladdin comes in and he shows her the ropes and all this. They get into some trouble. And then all of a sudden, when the soldiers come up to arrest them, what does she do? She throws off the hood and she reveals the glory. And what do they do? Their response is to bow. Their response is to say, we had no idea it was you. In similar fashion, Jesus veiled his glory when he walked in the earth. But there were certain times where Jesus would reveal his glory. It would, like, it would peek out from the hood, and when people saw his glory, they responded appropriately. You remember when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and, you know, these guys kind of descend from heaven, they appear, and the Bible says his face shone like a white light. What did the disciples do? They said, we have to worship. We have to build something. We have to do something because they have seen a portion of his glory. And so even though he would allow his glory to be seen from time to time, it was a fraction of his glory, and then it would kind of be veiled again. And so Jesus took his glory, the, the privilege of his glory, and he laid it aside for most of the time. Another thing that Jesus gave up was the privilege of omniscience. Okay, so we know that God is all-knowing. He can see into the hearts of every person. He knows the future. He knows the past. He knows all of history. He knows what people will do, what people will refuse to do. God knows all of this. Jesus being God, he knows all of this. We talked a few weeks ago. Um, how can this be that Jesus, if he were God, how could he not know everything? And we kind of gave this, this you know, again, most of these analogies, when you're trying to describe God, they're, they're going to fall apart at some point because he's incomprehensible. But the idea is simply this, that there was divinity and there was humanity. And within that, there was a divine mind that knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things. But in Christ, there was also a human mind that was limited in the same way that our mind is limited. But there were times in Christ's life where the, where the human mind would gain access to the divine mind and he would be able to speak things prophetically or he would be able to see into the hearts of certain individuals or see people where they were. You remember with Nathaniel, when, when Jesus comes and he starts just talking to Nathaniel, Nathaniel looks at him and he says, how do you know me? Like, how do you even know my name? And this is what Jesus says. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before your brother even called you, right? So, so that was a moment where the human part of Christ accessed the divine part of Christ so that he could execute the omniscience, the all-knowing of God. But then there are times where we see where Jesus did not 
allow his human mind to access the divinity, right? You remember Jesus is uh, talking to the disciples. He's talking about the end of all things and how all this calamity is going to come and the, the day of the Lord is going to come. And the disciples say, Lord, tell us when is this going to happen? What day is it going to be? And in that moment, Jesus refused to access the divine mind. And he said, that is not for me to know or for you to know. That is the will of the Father, right? And so in these two examples, we see that there are times, the point of what I'm trying to get to is that there were times where, yeah, Jesus dipped into his divinity, but there were a lot of times where he just laid it aside in order to identify with humanity. And so one of the privileges that he gave up was his omniscience, the all-knowing power of God. Another thing he gave up was the privilege of omnipotence. This is uh, the all-powerful God, okay? So in one instance, when Jesus is tempted by Lucifer, you remember Jesus goes, the, one of the most fascinating, you know, sentences in scripture, the Bible says that the spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness, right? And there he fasted and prayed and was tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights. Well, we see in this moment of temptation where Lucifer comes to Jesus and he says, if you are God, if you are who you say you are, see those stones right there? Why don't you just turn those stones into bread because you've been fasting for over a month. You haven't had a morsel of food for over a month. Just go ahead and take those stones, turn them into bread and go ahead and eat them if you are who you say you are. Well, that was a moment for the, for the Lord, right? Like he chose in that moment to reject the temptation and to say, no, I'm not going to dip into divinity and turn those stones into bread because that would have only benefited himself, right? So we see a moment where Jesus lays aside his power. But then later what we find is when there are multitudes surrounding him, Jesus looks and he says, listen, boys, we need some food if we're going to feed all these people. And so he goes and people bring him fish and they bring him loaves. And what does he do with those? Does he eat them himself? No, he doesn't. He dips into his divinity and he multiplies them so that other people are benefited. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus never dipped into his divinity. Man, that's, that's, that's even, even the wording of dipped into his divinity. That is, I am not doing justice to this. But I think, I think you're understanding what, what I'm trying to get at. Jesus would not go into that in order to benefit himself, but the times where he did it, it was only to benefit other people. And that is a sacrificial moment for Jesus all throughout his life because he laid aside what he could do at any moment. He chose not to do it because he didn't want to do it for himself. And so that's the example of uh, the omnipotence. And then finally, Jesus gave up the uh, privilege of um, being omnipresent, which is this idea that Jesus is at all places at all times. We believe that God is, you know, just as much here in the sanctuary as he is, you know, on Mars. If you were to go land on Mars, we believe that God is at all places at all times. Well, though Jesus was limited-esque in a human form, obviously he couldn't be at all places at, at all times. This is a complex one here, but there were times where the sun would do things that would touch the being omnipresent. So for instance, there's, a, there's a, uh, an example where Jesus is teaching 
And the Bible says, you know, the church people kind of ran him out of the church and they were going to go push him off a cliff. But the Bible says that Jesus basically like translated through the crowd and he was off. They, they couldn't find him. Okay. So in one way, Jesus executed the ability to be in, in multiple places at one time. But, but probably a better example is the idea when Jesus, you know, the people would come to him and they would say, uh, you know, Jairus's daughter, he would say, listen, my daughter's dying. And Jesus said, I want to heal her. I want to help take me to where she is. But then he got stuck in traffic. And the Bible says that, that he just spoke a word from a distance miles and miles away and in that the omnipresence of God was made manifest because though Jesus was in one location, his word went forth to another location. And so again, though, it was for the benefit of someone else. And so these are kind of the, some of the things that Jesus lays down as it relates to his glory, okay? Um, number two in your notes, Jesus not only stepped down from certain divine rights and privileges, but he also stepped down into humanity. Okay, he stepped down into humanity. It isn't just that Jesus laid aside some things of the divine nature, but it's that he picked up some things of the human nature, right? And so he, he put on, he came in the form of a servant. And so what does it mean? What are the things human-wise that Jesus picked up? Um, so for instance, Jesus took on the emotions of mankind. Throughout scripture, we see Jesus operate with love. We see him operate with compassion. We see him operate with contempt, with anger, with frustration. Uh, even with his own disciples, we see Jesus take on the emotions of, of a human being. Furthermore, we see Jesus take on the frailty of a human being, okay? So uh, in the wilderness, Jesus, you know, 40 days of fasting, what happens? He gets hungry, right? He gets thirsty. There are moments when, you know, he goes to the woman at the water of the well, are you, are you going to get me a drink or not? You know, it, it exposes his thirst. But even further than that, Jesus has now become a human being to such the degree he stepped into humanity where the eternal God is harmless. He cannot, or not harmless, he cannot be harmed. There, there's nothing that can affect or hurt God. But when he chose to partake in the kenosis, now all of a sudden God can experience physical pain. Okay, that's, that's huge. He can now experience physical pain. Weariness, tiredness, he needs rest, he needs sleep, he needs food, he needs sustenance. All of these things, he took on the frailty of humankind. Um, the God that is eternal was, was, now had the ability to die. It's just incomprehensible. Furthermore, Jesus also took on uh, warfare, the, the warfare that, that men encounter through spiritual warfare, through temptation and, and other elements in his life. But Jesus also took on the natural limitations of mankind, Okay. I want to give you another picture, okay, and I hope I can say this well, but I want to give you this, this picture or this idea. Have you ever seen one of those movies where there is a person who has never, you know, committed a crime, they're innocent, they don't need to be in prison, perhaps they're even a police officer, right? But what they decide to do is they decide to secretly incognito put themselves in a prison, 
in a prison system, right? They're innocent. They haven't done anything wrong, but they kind of condescend themselves and they put themselves in a situation, a prison situation, so that maybe they can investigate, you know, a crime or find out truth or, or rescue somebody that really shouldn't be in jail or whatever the case may be. But they who have done no wrong intentionally put themselves in a prison system. And when they put themselves in a prison system, nobody in the prison knows, even the guards, the, you know, the warden, nobody knows that they're really innocent and they don't belong there, but they, they intentionally put themselves there. And what happens when they put themselves there is that now they have to abide by the same rules and limitations as every other prisoner, okay? This is what God does. He sees the brokenness of the fallen world and he intentionally, the one who knew no sin, he never did wrong. He intentionally put himself into the fallen world system and he submitted himself to the natural limitations that everybody else had to submit to, right? So what that means is this. Luke 2, 52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, and in favor with God and man. What does that mean? It means that Jesus had to grow in a lot of ways that, that you and I have to grow. He had to grow intellectually. He had to learn things. He had to grow physically in his body. As cursed as it is, Jesus had to go through puberty Okay, Jesus had to grow relationally with God. He grew relationally with humans, but it's because he intentionally put himself in a system that he did not belong in, but he did it. He did it because of his love for us. Okay, so he, he took on the natural limitations of humankind also. He also took on the appearance of a man. Okay, uh, this is what Hebrew says. Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like people, fully human, listen, in every way. In every way that you are human, Jesus was made to be human in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, if Christ would not have descended and if he would not have become fully human, he could not made atonement for our sins. It was, it was God that, that made atonement for us, but he did so in human form, okay? Uh, the scripture says, or Paul says like this, he says, you know, some translations say he, he came in the form of a servant. Other translations say in the form of a slave or in the, the form of a bondservant. Well, this is what's, what's important. Jesus came with the appearance of a man and subjected himself to, himself to all these limitations for this reason, okay? Uh, I know that, that we, we look at the word slave or, or bondservant and we're like, oh yeah, he, he just came to serve other people. But, but it's so much more than that because you begin to realize that being a slave or a bondservant was never part of the plan of God. In Eden, there was never a plan for people to become slaves or, or subjected in those types of ways. All of that stuff came as a result of what? Sin, rebellion. Anger against God, destruction against one another. And so this is really what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, 
Jesus came in the form of a slave, but what Paul's really saying is he's saying Jesus came in the form of a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying he came in the likeness of a sinner because it was a profound moment where he could identify with sinners. And so he humbled himself to this incredible degree but again, let me just remind us that he did all of this without forfeiting his godness. He was always God, even when he was always human. Um, uh, C.G. Moley, he wrote it like this. He said, this self-emptying, this, this kenosis, placed Jesus indeed on the creaturely level in regard of the reality of the human experience of growth, and human capacity for suffering, but never for one moment did it, could it make Jesus other than the absolute and infallible master and guide and God of his redeemed people. He humbled himself and chose to take on a form as he was the form of God, as he was God. Very confusing, I, I realize it's very complex, I, I get that. Um, but these are, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the kenosis. So not only did he lay aside certain divine rights and privileges, he stepped down into humanity, but then even from humanity, it would be one thing if he showed up and he was just an average guy. That's not what scripture says. He showed up in the form of a human, but then he showed up in the form of a slave. Slaves in that era, and as well as, you know, in, in the era of American history, were not really considered fully human, right? And so Jesus not only became human, he said, I'm going to go lower than that. I'm going to position myself in the form of a slave so that I can identify at the lowest levels in the eyes of people so that I can identify with these people. Now, what's, what's fascinating is that you know, you begin to, to look at what a bondservant was and what did it mean to be a slave in, in this period of human history and all of these things. And one of the most interesting things that um, you find through research is that bondservants in this kind of era, they were not allowed to really own anything. They couldn't own property. They couldn't own, you know, cattle or animals or livestock or anything. They, they couldn't really own anything. Almost without exception, everything that they had was borrowed, right? And when you realize that and you take a step back and you look at the, the, the long view of the life of Jesus, think about all of the things that Jesus had to borrow in his lifetime. He borrowed the, where he was born was a borrowed room in a borrowed house. Jesus then goes, as he's doing his ministry, he wants to feed people. What does he do? He borrows some fish and some loaves. Later, as he's about to go to the, um, uh, the Last Supper, the Bible says that he borrowed the upper room from someone. As he's going into, you know, on Palm Sunday when he rides on a donkey, where does he get the donkey? He borrows it. As he dies on the cross and he's buried in the tomb, whose tomb was it? It wasn't his. It was a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathema. So, so the idea that, that Jesus, 
These aren't just words. These aren't just phrases. There is depth and there is meaning to this. And this is what it means when Jesus, Scripture says, he came in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a slave. He literally came on so many levels with that type of disposition um, in order to connect with, with humanity. And so during his time on earth, Jesus, indeed, he lived, he acted, he functioned like a slave, like a servant. Uh, you remember in Matthew 20, he said, um, the son of man did not come to be served. He came to what? He came to serve. He came to be a slave. He came to be a servant um, for, for the people of earth. Now, he did this primarily on two different levels. Number one, Jesus served the people of earth on an eternal level. So that same scripture where Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve, the back half of that scripture says, and to give my life as a ransom for many, right? So, so in an eternal sense, Jesus had the end game in mind. He said, this life, you know, there, there are things that he's going to accomplish in life. I'm going to help people. I'm going to love people. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be all this. But the end game is this. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. That's not an earthly goal. That's an eternal goal. And Jesus came to serve us in that way. But Jesus also came to serve the people of earth on an earthly level, right? And we see that in the teachings and the healings and the love that he would show to children, the way that he served people. But there's one particular portion of scripture in John chapter 13 that I think, in my humble opinion, I think Jesus was doing something that has a whole lot of meaning that's just obvious to us. But I think that Jesus is also giving us a picture of the kenosis in action. You remember when Jesus is with his disciples and he goes and he begins to wash their feet. And they begin to just face out and they're like, Lord, far be it from me. I, I should be washing your feet, right? And they get into this little spat and obviously Jesus wins because he's always right. But, but I want you to listen to what John records as Jesus is sitting at the table and he gets up to wash the feet. This is what he says. Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. I think, again, my humble opinion, people may disagree, but I think what Jesus is revealing is the fact that he took off his outer garment of glory. He laid it aside and he took up the towel in order to serve all of humanity, eternally and earthly. That's what I think Jesus is giving us a picture of in that moment in John chapter 13. So he stepped down in all of this, but ultimately kind of to capsulate all of this, number four in your notes, Jesus also stepped down into humility. I want you to consider a few things about the life of Jesus as far as it relates to hu humility. First off, I think it's important to understand that Jesus was born in a humble time. Out of all of human history, Jesus was born in the era where there had been four centuries, 400 years of no word from heaven, no word from God. The governments of the earth had overthrown the people of Israel just time and time again. And now they're at a state where there is no national pride. There's really very little national identity. They're being overrun by the Roman Empire. 
it's a very, for a Jewish person, it's a very humble time to be alive. And, and when I say humble, I mean humble in the worst kind of way. So Jesus, he chose to arrive in not the glory of Israel, but in one of the most humble times of Israel's existence. Secondly, Jesus was born into a humble family. We find Mary, who is she? She's just a peasant girl. She has no accolades. They're not politically connected. They don't have any religious, you know, in, insider information or, or activity or favor going on there. His earthly father um, uh, adopts him. We find that Joseph's an incredibly humble man. He's a very honorable man. Uh, he, you know, I know he's called a carpenter or a stonemason. He worked with his hands, whatever the case is, but a very humble living, a very humble family that Jesus was born into. But Jesus was also born into a very humble town. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in the small town of Bethlehem. But even in this humility, there, there are layers of, of meaning and purpose as to why Jesus was born there. So, for example, uh, the word Bethlehem translated, what it means is the house of bread. Well, that's important, that's significant, because Jesus would later say, I am the bread of life. Jesus, being the bread of life, came from a town that is literally interpreted the house of bread, okay? Furthermore, um, the, the lambs that would be raised for the Passover, the, the thousands of lambs that would be taken to slaughter every single year for Passover, the mass uh, percentage of those lambs that were led to slaughter, they were raised in Bethlehem. Even today, I went to Bethlehem a few years ago. There are still, it is a prime area, it's a lush area where farmers will, or, or shepherds will, will live and they'll, they'll kind of have their herds and all of this stuff. Well, it wasn't just lambs that were led to slaughter. It was the Lamb of God that was led to slaughter. And so there are all of these deep, meaningful moments. But Jesus humbled himself, being born in a very humble place in Bethlehem. Um, in Bethlehem, he was also born in a very humble location. Um, we find that, you know, I know a lot of translations say, well, you know, Joseph and Mary showed up. There was no place at the end for them. And so what they ended up doing is they ended up finding, you know, a, a spare room. I know it's like um, it's interpreted a lot of times a stable or, you know, a manger. That can mean a couple different things. But whether it was a stable in our mind, like there's animals all around, you know, like in the nativity scene, or whether it's a spare room that's just kind of thrown together, regardless, it was a very humble place for the king of every king to be born, okay? And so he was born in a very humble location. He was also born in a humble manner. Um, he lived in a humble manner, should I say. The Bible describes Jesus as meek and mild and lowly, Jesus himself, um, you know, I, I would never classify Jesus as being homeless, okay? But Jesus would even say this. He would say, listen, the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night, okay? And so Jesus understood he was, he was kind of nomadic in his ministry, and he would travel around kind of on a circuit type thing. And so he lived a very humble, in a, in a humble manner. I remember one time I, I heard a, a preacher preaching, and um, he you know, he basically made the case, Jesus wasn't poor, and therefore you don't need to be poor. And I'm thinking, where do you get this? You know, and he goes in and he's like, what was Judas's job? Judas was the treasurer. He kept the money bag. 
If, you know, if Jesus was poor, he wouldn't have had the ability to, you know, feed this guy and pay this guy somebody to watch over his money. So therefore, Jesus was blessed. You need to be blessed. Go, therefore, give us your money. Okay, it was that type of thing. And uh, though I, I understand what he was trying to say, I think it was a very foolish thing to say. I don't think it describes the character of Jesus at all. But I also don't think that's really the story that, that we get when we read the Gospels. Jesus lived in a very humble manner um, throughout his entire life. And then finally, Jesus died a very humble death. Um, we find where scripture says that Jesus was falsely accused. He was ridiculed. He was spat on. He was called names. He was struck and people told him prophesy who just hit you as he was blindfolded. They plucked out his beard, all of these things. But even in all of this, the Bible says, but he said not a word, right? He humbled himself to the suffering that he had agreed to when he agreed to the kenosis, the self-emptying of God. And so he was stripped of his dignity. He was, uh, he was pushed into suffering. He was, you know, he was hung on a cross, which was a horrifying and a humiliating death. And, and I'm going to tell you, I know, you know, we have photos and paintings and, you know, sculptures of, of Jesus hanging on a cross. And he's got this sash across his waist. Jesus did not have a sash across his waist. He was bare naked before the world. It was the most humiliating, disgusting form of death that the Roman government could implement. And Jesus agreed to it for us. He humbled himself and he agreed to do this for us. And even in the midst of all of this, as his clothes were stripped from him and laying on the floor at the foot of the cross, the soldiers are gambling for his clothes. And what does Jesus say? He says, Father, in all of this, Forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing. If they only knew what they were doing, if they knew who I was, they would not be doing this. So, Father, please forgive them. And so what we find is that this dissension into humility is the track that in the New Testament we are called to run upon. Right? We are, we are called Christians, which uh, means basically that, that we are like Christ C.S. Lewis would, would interpret it as saying we're like little Christs walking around. Not that we, we are deity or anything, but we are a representation of Christ. And throughout all the, the New Testament, we, we are called to, to walk in those footsteps of humility, to humble ourselves, to live in a humble manner, to live, to serve other people. And as we go through this process of sanctification, where we go from glory to glory to glory, as we grow and the, the old man, the things begin to fall off of us and the new man, you know, gains more and more life, um, this becomes more of a reality, this humility, right? Um, we see this in the life of Paul. It's, it's so fascinating. I know, I know I've mentioned this before. I will mention it many, many more times because it's just such a profound, powerful example but you know, the first book of scripture that Paul wrote was the book of Galatians. He wrote it very early on. I mean, within probably 20 years after, maybe 30 years after the resurrection. But as he writes the book of Galatians, he calls himself an apostle. He says, I am, it's almost like he's making the case. He's saying, no, I am an apostle. I am called of God. I, I am an apostle. He's trying, to, he's trying to stake his claim that he is an apostle. Seven, eight, nine years later, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, and, 
And as he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, it's not, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. He says, well, I'm an apostle, but, but I'm the least of the apostles, right? I'm, but I'm still an apostle, you know? About seven years later, he pins the letter to the church at Ephesus, and he's no longer an apostle. He's no longer just, you know, I'm an apostle, just kind of the least of the apostles. Now, I'm the least of the saints, right? Out of all the saints that exist, I am the least of all of these. Notice the downward trajectory. I'm an apostle. Well, I'm the, I'm the least of the apostles. No, I'm the least of all saints. And by the time he gets to the book of Timothy, his protege, at the end of Paul's life, this is what he says. He says, I'm not an apostle. I'm not the least of the apostles. I'm not even the least of the saints. I am the chief of sinners. If there was ever a sinner on earth, I'm him. And it's a trajectory, listen to me, it is Paul stepping down from one thing to another as he realizes more and more the weakness of his own humanity and the greatness of who Jesus is. It's the stepping down. And so even in that, we remember when Paul says, listen to me, people, follow me as I follow Christ. He's talking about a lot of different things right there. But one of the premier things he's talking about is his humility. And he's saying things like, listen to me, people, don't think too highly of yourselves. Be honest in the evaluation of yourselves and surrender, submit your lives to the Lord. And then finally, you know, after Christ served us so well in all these different ways, he, he stepped down from his divine rights and privileges. He stepped down into humanity and then he stepped down into servanthood, and then he stepped down into humility. And then the Bible ends with what we talked about last week, that ultimately then he stepped down into death, and not just death, but death on a cross. And so in this text, in this very, you know, two verses of Scripture, we just see the, we see the, the, the glory of who he is, the eternal God, and we see him lower himself. We see him stoop down so low because we were so depraved and so deep and he picks us up and he puts us on his shoulders so that he is the one that carries us and it's nothing that we can do. It's the goodness and the graciousness of God that has brought us to this place. That my friends is the kenosis. That's the self-emptying of God so that he could come for us and ultimately for his glory. Amen, amen. 